and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Oh, well, welcome to Bent Tree. Uh, you, you members of Bent Tree, uh, it's so good to have you here. Uh, we had our prayer night this last week, our member prayer night, and just a wonderful time. Uh, just wasn't it? Just a great time. We prayed for our church, uh, and uh, and we said, uh, God, would you make this church into what you want it to be? And I think he is doing that. Well, let's get our Bibles out. Uh, every Christian is designed specifically by God to connect to a local church, to be part of a faith family, a, a spiritual family. But it's also where we connect to the bigger church, the big C church, uh, what we call the invisible church, that one that's throughout time with believers spread all over the world. And we, we connect to that big C church through the local spiritual family. That'd be us here. So it's where we know people, it's where we are known by people, it's where the fellowship occurs and discipleship occurs. And today we're going to talk about something that brings us together and that connects us like nothing else in the life of the church. Because it connects us as a spiritual family uh, with each other and, and connects us to God and that's the practice of the Lord's Supper, or what we also call communion. Now, if you've missed any part of this series and you call Bent Tree your home, uh, or, or you're thinking about making Bent Tree your home, your church family, make sure you go back and listen to the previous weeks in this series because it's important. We're answering that question what is the church? Uh, you can listen to wherever you get podcasts or on YouTube, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, let me just say, I'll, I'll give a plug along with Pastor Hal, is next week we have that thing called Starting Point. It's the little class that we have uh, that leads to membership, lets you check out the church. I'm teaching that class for the first time in a few years. Um, it's usually a staff member. I can't wait to do it. Uh, so you guys, uh, you come and uh, be a part of that. If you if you want to go through it again, you can come through. Just sign up at btc.churchcenter.com. But uh, you new folks that are thinking about joining, you should uh, come to that class. And, and you should join. So, okay. Because this series... Um, is also about connecting as a family. Like, what is the church? What do we do? What are we about? This stuff is so critically important. That's why I wanted you to hear all of the sermons in the series. Well, as you heard me refer to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith throughout the series, we'll talk more about that really when we're coming close to the, the end of the series uh, on our 14th birthday. Uh, that will be on March 21st is our 14th birthday, but on that Sunday uh, that we're going to be talking about that a lot though. So it's simply though a guide for us that doesn't replace scripture, but it helps us understand the basic core doctrines. It's old school orthodox, orthodox doctrine um, that we can stand on other people's shoulders that have gone before us. By the way, when I've had uh, people hear me say about 1689, they go, Paul, don't we need something newer than the year 1689? Uh, and, and like, couldn't we do something a little newer? And the answer is the gospel doesn't change. Doctrine doesn't change. 
Churches change doctrine, but that's why we go to the old stuff. Modern churches invent new beliefs all the time. Practices, uh, they shouldn't, but they do. So we use old school stuff as our guide here at Bentry. And really, we're not going back to 1689. We're, we're going back to like year one, baby. We're, we're going, we're forming, reforming back to sola scriptura, what scripture actually says. We're going back to the Bible and those New Testament, the gospel and the epistles. So, well, that's because scripture, that's our standard here. Uh, biblical truth and the 1689 is a solid uh, plan for that. So, so a definition of what the local church is, we pulled from that document way back 14 years ago uh, when we started Bentry. We've been looking at this, and I want to look at it again today. And this is a good short summary of a definition of what the local church looks like or what it's supposed to look like. Look at it again with me. The local church is a geographical community of true believers in Jesus Christ and by faith has placed their trust in him as Savior and Lord. In obedience to Scripture, they organize under qualified biblical leadership. They gather regularly for worship and the preaching of God's Word, the Bible. They observe the biblical ordinances of baptism and communion. They are unified by the Holy Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and go out into the community where they live to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. To live as missionaries for God's glory and their joy. This is the picture of what we do as a church. You remember the aircraft carrier analogy. Uh, we, we gather here each week to equip each other, to send each other out. Well, today I want us to concentrate as we think through what we mean by the ordinance of communion or what we also refer to as the Lord's Supper. And God willing, next week we're going to look at baptism. Uh, but as we look at the Lord's Supper, we need to also say what it is and what it's not. Because sometimes you can describe something of what it is, but if you don't describe what it's not, people can get the wrong idea and they get confused. It reminds me of a good joke. I don't always tell a good joke. There's just sometimes a joke and they're not good. But uh, here's the joke. But it's a good example. Uh, there was a hunter named Jim. He loved to hunt, specifically loved to deer hunt. Jim was planning on going deer hunting. And Jim's good friend, Earl, uh, had never been deer hunting. He had bugged Jim over and over, over and over, please just teach me the ropes. Take me with you on the deer hunting uh, trip with you. And so Jim finally broke down and agreed to Earl's demand. So Earl comes along. All the way on the trip, the drive, Jim tells him about the different things you need to know for deer hunting as they arrive. They begin to, to hike with all their equipment, their, their rifles, and all the stuff they're going to need. And they're really excited, but Earl, he's so excited about this. So Jim gets there and puts Earl all in his little deer blind, gets him set up. He says, now remember, when the deer walks in, to your line of sight, he says, put your scope on him, put your finger on the trigger, exhale, and pull the trigger. And so Earl says, okay, he's a little bit nervous. 
Jim says, you got it? Earl says, I got it. So Jim, he heads over to the other deer blind, about 100 yards away. He's just about to get all set up, get his rifle up to scan, and he hears a bang, bang, bang. And he heard that sound of yelling, and so he ran as fast as he could, and he came upon his friend Earl, pointing his rifle at another man. The guy had his hands in the air, backed up, and, and Jim said, Earl, what, what are you doing, Earl? And Earl said, I took careful aim, I slowly exhaled, pulled the trigger, and I shot my deer just like you said, Jim. And now this man won't let me have him. And the man that Earl was holding at gunpoint, he said, hey, buddy, if you'll let me get my saddle off of him, you can have your deer. I didn't say it was good, but this is pretty good. The point of the story is you can think you know what something is, but if you don't know what it's also that it's not, you can get confused. You can get it wrong what you think you know. So that's what we're going to do today. We don't want to be like Earl, very wrong. We all come to the, that story's not true. There were no animals hurt. Some of you, some of you ladies were like, killed a horse (laughs) and some of you're like it was a horse okay all right we come to the text all of us with some baggage religious baggage background of life experience Uh, I carry baggage too. presuppositions we come to something with and I heard it said is that the goal of a preacher is to comfort the afflicted but then to afflict the comforted And and because of the various doctrines of the Lord's Supper and the baggage that comes along with all the doctrines, I I may say some things today that may upset you. That's not my goal. Uh, My goal is to please God with what I say, not necessarily everyone who hears it, though. I want you to know the truth of solid biblical doctrine surrounding the Lord's Supper, of what it is, what it's not. And some say, but Paul... Uh, is it really that important? And the answer is yes, deadly important. You'll get what I mean by that later on as we get down into the text. So what is the Lord's Supper? What is what we also call communion? Uh, I'm going to give you lots to take notes on, so get your notes out. We, uh, we like to give the definitions right here so you can write them down. This comes right out of what we just read, though. Here it is. The Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances that the church regularly practices together. The Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances that the church, the family of God, regularly practices together. Regularly, uh, the church regularly practices. Okay. Baptism, uh, baptism is the other ordinance. We're going to hit that next week, Lord willing. Now, some call each of those a sacrament. A sacrament. We tend to use the word ordinance uh, when we describe either one of those things. Ordinance simply means uh, for the church that we have been commanded. It's our orders. We've been commanded to carry these out by Jesus. Uh, So however, some Reformed Baptists do use the term sacrament. 
but they don't mean what the Roman Catholic Church means by that term. Now, this is important. We're going to get to this. Uh, We want to practice in our words what we mean. In other words, we want to be precise, but the term sacraments, okay, historically for Reformed Baptists. But like I said, we tend to use the word ordinance. Now, if you have a Roman Catholic background, you were probably taught there are seven sacraments or ordinances. However, remember that with any doctrine, we need to hold it up in light of Scripture and let it prove itself. The cry, the cry of the Reformation still is the cry, sola scriptura, which means Scripture alone, which is our source of strength. All the measuring of truth we need to do, we measure with the Bible. My goal is not to hammer any of you, especially my Roman Catholic friends who listen online. And they let me know they do listen. My goal as a pastor, my duty as a pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to show you what scripture actually says. And and I want you to know the difference between a deer and a horse. Between solid biblical doctrine and man-made doctrine. You with me? Roman Catholic doctrine around the Lord's Supper developed over hundreds and hundreds of years by several different popes and councils that have rewritten it. And you see that is the danger of any church leader or group of people changing what the Bible says because why? They could get it wrong. Especially if you think that the pope or the the church council decision supersedes or is at least at the the same level of scripture. That's a dangerous thing. Now, we'll get more of what the Lord's Supper is not in just a few minutes, but let's take a look at what it is. We said it's an ordinance, it's a command, but what does that mean? Well, let's go back to our text for today. The Apostle Paul gives us 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We see that on the night of his betrayal. Remember, who had betrayed him? Judas. But you know who else had betrayed him? Peter. Peter goes, I don't know the man. When a little girl had asked him, are you with him? Jesus clearly states that it is to be celebrated, the Lord's Supper, in his church as a lasting reminder, a demonstration of his self-sacrifice through his death on the cross. Now, something you need to understand is the Lord's Supper is a deep mystery. We don't totally understand every aspect of it and what it means, but I think we will. The depth of of the meaning is so far greater than we, what we could ever imagine, I think, at this point. And yet, it, is, it has a very straightforward meaning as well. And it serves some very specific functions in the daily lives of the members of the church. 
For instance, one of the main things we need to understand is that the Lord's Supper serves to reinforce believers' faith in the benefits of Christ's death. In other words, it strengthens our faith when we take part in this. It's what we call an ordinary means of grace. Not that grace of God, the grace of God is somehow ordinary, but that ordinarily this is how the grace is poured out into the life of a believer. There are other ways like the preaching of God's word, baptism, we talk about that next week, prayer, all of those things. Another way to think of, uh, of it is that the Lord's Supper is to be a nourishing meal spiritually. Now we're going to eat it and drink it, but it is a nourishing meal spiritually. Something spiritual is happening. In other words, it promotes our spiritual growth in Jesus like a spiritual food that we ingest. Does that make sense? At the same time, the Lord's Supper reminds us that the commitment that we make as believers to Jesus to follow him every day of our lives. It reminds us of what we owe, which is everything, to Jesus. Amen? And get this, write this down. The Lord's Supper acts as a symbol and assurance of believers' connection to Christ Jesus. The Lord's Supper acts as a spirit, a symbol and assurance of the believer's connection to Christ Jesus. Now, when we say symbol or symbolically, what, what do we mean by that? You've heard me use the analogy before. I like this analogy. Let's say you're driving north from Denver on I-25. First of all, you're probably feeling close to God because you're praying. And let's say you are trying to look, you've never been there before, you're trying to look for the Rocky Mountain National Park, you're not sure exactly where it is, and you see the sign to exit I-25, because right there it says Highway 34, Rocky Mountain National Park. What do you do? You exit, right? You exit. The sign on I-25 is not the Rocky Mountain National Park. It just points to it, correct? Correct? All right, likewise, the Lord's Supper does not involve God the Father once again offering up Jesus nailed to the cross, suffering as an atoning sacrifice of sin. It's not a repeat of Jesus' suffering and death. Why? Because Jesus has done that already. The price for believer's sin has already been paid on Calvary. Jesus doesn't have to do it again and again and again. And yet that is one of the false doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church has taught us is that with each and every Lord's Supper, Jesus is once again on the cross suffering. It is why the crucifix is a wrong symbol. Jesus is not on the cross anymore. There's no biblical basis for Jesus being re-sacrificed. Instead, listen to what the author of Hebrews says. This is critical to understand. He's talking about the Old Covenant we find in the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament literally means. Before Jesus came to set us free, he's referring to how the priests practiced the sacrifice of animals under the law at the temple in that Old Covenant. So we read this in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 11. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by single, a single offering, you see that? A single offering, he has, made, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is important to understand. Jesus' death paid the price for sin for all time for those who trust him as Savior and Lord. Somebody say amen. Praise God for that. You hear me say this often, and I say it because it is so important. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross didn't make salvation possible for his people. His death made, it, his, made salvation secure. Do you see the difference? Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross didn't make salvation possible for his people. His death made salvation secure. This is at the heart of the atoning work that the gospel talks about. Jesus on the cross, this is the atoning work. Jesus' sacrificial death didn't have to be repeated over and over every time you sin or I sin. For those that are in Christ Jesus, our sins in the past, they've been paid for. Our sins that we are committing that we will commit today. You probably committed it today. On the, way to church, on the way to church, you committed a sin. Those sins have been paid for if you are in Christ Jesus. The sins in the future that you haven't even thought up yet, they've been paid for. But then does that mean that we can just go on sinning in our mind like, hey, I got a get out of hell free card. I'm just going to hold on to it here. Paul asked that rhetorical question in Romans chapter 6. And listen to how he answers that question. He says in verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. This is important. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's the hard truth about following Christ in this life. As we are regenerated, meaning when we are born again spiritually, brought to life by God, we are justified before God. Amen? Meaning, we are declared righteous and sinless, not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done. He's made alive, made us alive in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. All of our sins, we are imputed with the righteousness or the good deeds of Jesus himself have been added into our account. So when God looks on us, when we are seen by God as having the actual righteousness of Jesus, you need to rest in that. As we begin to follow Jesus, though, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We repent of our sin. Following Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, 
we do our best to follow Jesus' commands found in Scripture. We flee from temptation and sin. But we're still going to sin, aren't we? Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, said believers' condition in life is like this. Um, This is the Christians are simultaneously justified and sinner. Christians are simultaneously justified and sinner. Do you see that? We're both. We're simply wrestling with sin. We're slowly being sanctified. The sharp edges chiseled off. We're being molded. Justified, meaning that because of our righteousness of Christ imputed into our account, we are seen by God with the righteousness of Christ. Roman Catholic doctrine and others say this doctrine is wrong. They believe that once you are saved, that every new sin brings a little bit more separation between you and God. They rank types of sin. So some sins only hurt you a little bit and separate you a little bit from God. They'll still send you to purgatory for, for a long time, but they won't separate you. And then some would say, not, not every new sin separates you from God, but when you, uh, your sin has accumulated enough of those smaller sins, then you are cut off from God completely. You lose your salvation. I would call those Mondays. How about you? But Roman Catholic doctrine says also that if you commit certain sins, which they would call mortal sins, that you would be, uh, uh, that would be a sin that would destroy your relationship. That sin destroys your relationship. Here's the good news. You'll not find any of that doctrine in the Bible. It's a made up false doctrine by man. This is important to understand. And even better news for believers in Christ Jesus. I'm talking about those that are truly saved from sin and given the righteousness of Jesus. We don't become unsaved when we sin. We don't become unsaved when we sin. Praise God. In fact, believers in Christ Jesus, we're already forgiven. Listen to me. If you're truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Because if you could, you would already lost it. I know you guys. Me too. But some would say, yes, they can lose their salvation. I've seen it firsthand. There's two problems with that. You probably already see them. First, you would be elevating your personal experience to the level of Scripture as a guide. That's not right. But second, it's that Scripture actually speaks to this directly. The Apostle John answering this question of those that claim to be Christians and followers of Christ who then turned their back and left the faith, he says this in 1 John chapter 2. He says, they went out from us, talking about those who Uh, have rejected Christ, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. You see his reasoning? But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, the fakers will fall away. That is one of the ways you will know that they weren't believers really. Now, does that mean that all that fall away will never be saved? They won't come back. Absolutely not. 
I've seen people that have fallen into sin, walked away from the church, that weren't Christians before. They claimed to be. But then God actually uses that to bring them back. Do you see what I mean? We never stop praying for those that God has put in our life. Even those that have walked away from the church and say, I hate God. But the ones that never return, were they ever saved? Did they lose their salvation? No, no. Here's the thing. As we talk about the Lord's Supper, thank God that our salvation is secure because of Christ, what he's done for us, not because of my ability to hold on because I'm rotten at this. That's why the Lord's Supper is so very important. And you go, why? Because it gives us a way to commemorate Christ's one-time sacrifice on the cross for us. Jesus, as our high priest, doesn't offer a lamb as a sacrifice for sin. He offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. It's why one of the titles that we see for Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God. Okay, here's something about the Lord's Supper I want us to understand. So write this one down. The Lord's Supper is a spiritual offering of praise to God for that sacrifice. The Lord's Supper is a spiritual offering of praise to God for that sacrifice. Let's look at the Gospel of Matthew. This time as as Jesus begins to instruct his disciples about the Lord's Supper. We read in Matthew 26, verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord's Supper is this spiritual offering of the highest praise to God for that sacrifice. It's us saying, we thank you, God. Now remember, we need to define what the Lord's Supper is and what it's not. Official church doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church practices the sacrifice of the Mass. This is a wrong thing. It's totally unacceptable. Go, Paul, why why are you hammering the Roman Catholics, our friends? Because we love them. We want to set the record straight. Because we want to go back what Scripture says, not what a Pope says, not what a council says. By the way, I say reform doctrine. What what do I mean by reform doctrine? The reform means to reform something to the original form. It means a returning to form. What is the original form? Right here. It's why sola scriptura is so important. When we say a core doctrine is biblical truth, that's what we're talking about. Official church doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church practices what is called the sacrifice of the mass. Now, why is this so wrong? Because it is detracting from Christ's own sacrifice instead of commemorating Christ's sacrifice. It competes with it. You go, how so, Paul? Well, in this false doctrine, the mass becomes the thing It becomes the thing that forgives sins, not Christ's death on the cross. 
The Roman Catholic doctrine says you've got to take part of the mass to ha- take part in the mass to have your additional new sins that have piled up since the last time forgiven. You with me? Like get you kind of up to date. Like the actual act of participating in the Roman Catholic uh, communion is said to be sin forgiving in the act. Something you do to help you save yourself. But it's not. Because you can't save yourself. Jesus' death on the cross, his sacrifice is the thing that paid the price of your sin. To say that communion is the thing that forgives us is like saying the sign on the highway leading to the Rocky Mountain National Park is the same thing as the park itself. Do you see the difference? No. Communion is a sign that points to the real thing, which is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You see, for believers, those that have been born again, Jesus, his death paid the price for all of their sin. And make sure you get this. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the sole atonement for sin. Amen? There's nothing else you can do. The death of Jesus on the cross is the sole atonement for sin. The theological word here for this can also be used is a propitiation, meaning an atonement, in a payment that is made on our behalf. There's no other atonement out there that can forgive sin. There's nothing you or I can do to save yourself. All right, when we practice the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ has directed his shepherds, his pastors to to pray and bless the the bread and the juice, thus sanctifying them for holy communion. Pastors are to break the bread. You hear me each time I say, break that bread. Boom. Take the cup. Distribute the cup to the believers taking part. Here's what we don't do as pastors. We don't direct you to worship the elements themselves by holding them up and saying, worship these as an adoration. We don't parade them around saying, look, there's another false doctrine the Roman Catholic Church has tried to establish, but you won't find it in Scripture. This is important because it can easily, easily lead to the sin of idolatry. We read God's command, his moral law summed up in the second of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember this? Exodus 20 verse 4. God says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. We don't worship the elements. They're not the actual blood of Jesus. They're not the actual body. That would make idolatry because the actual body and the blood are in heaven. Instead, what we do is remember that the elements of the Lord's Supper bear a symbolic connection to Christ's crucifixion. I would even say, you can write this down, and there is a spiritual connection. It is symbolic, but it is very much a spiritual connection to Christ's crucifixion. Now, the elements are a symbol and a sign that point to the real thing that happened when Jesus sacrificed himself for us. By the way, when we didn't care who he was, right? 
He demonstrated love to us. All right, like the sign on I-25 is not the Rocky Mountain National Park. The sign only points to the real thing. Here's what I'm talking about. Roman Catholic false doctrine called transubstantiation teaches that as the priest consecrates the elements, the bread and the juice, the priest is calling down, I'm not making this up, I read this, I studied it for hours, is calling down the actual body and blood of Jesus from heaven at that moment to be re-sacrificed. It actually becomes Jesus' real body and blood. But they would say, but it's a miracle because it still looks like bread and, and wine. This is one of the main doctrines that fueled the Reformation 500 years ago. People go, that's not right. The reformers back then began to look at the Bible and say, hey, this doctrine is, it's not found anywhere. Let's just start with the reformers here on scripture and see what it says. The doctrine of transubstantiation is a false doctrine that is contradicted by scripture and reason. You go, Paul, but you're using reason. The difference is we look at scripture first and then we say, based on scripture, What is the doctrine? We don't elevate our reason, our doctrine to the same level of Scripture. We always hold Scripture as the highest. Sola Scriptura. What's so bad about believing this false doctrine? Isn't it, Paul, isn't it all the same? No, one's a horse, one's a deer. Because it undermines the very nature, the very purpose of the Lord's Supper. Not only does it Per, uh, perpetuate superstitions and creates a serious problem with idolatry, it destroys the actual meaning of the Lord's Supper itself. Because instead of pointing to Jesus as our once and all time, once for all time sacrifice for sin, it becomes the act we do to save ourselves. Now, when Christ Followers partake in the visible elements of the bread and of the juice in the Lord's Supper. We receive and feed on Christ's crucified body and all the benefits of his death. Spiritually. But not physically or in a bodily manner. But spiritually through faith, which is far more important. Unlike the false doctrine of transubstantiation, the body and the blood of Christ are not physically present in the ordinance itself, in the elements. They are present spiritually in faith to believers. The elements themselves are present just to our external senses. They are really physically just bread and just juice. But spiritually, they are so much more than that. They convey life to us once again. They are nourishment. I want to address three questions that I get regularly about the Lord's Supper. First is this. Paul, how often should we take part in it? The Lord's Supper as believers in a church family. You know, how often should we do it? Let's go back to the passage for today and look at it. Look at verse 24. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For 
as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 25 says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So it doesn't say a set time or amount of times, but as often as you do it, when you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And here in verse 26, it says, for as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, till he comes. So let me just ask, has Jesus returned yet? No. So we keep practicing. We keep celebrating it. In other words, the celebration of the Lord's Supper doesn't change the meaning and we are to practice it until Jesus comes to take it, take us back home. And by doing it, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Or you could say we are physically proclaiming a very real spiritual message of the gospel until he takes, uh, until he comes taking part in the physical supper. We will celebrate it with him in heaven. It's done regularly, but we're not told how often. Some churches do it weekly. I'm not against that. Some do it quarterly. I think that's too few. We celebrate it monthly. That's the correct way. You know why? Because I thought so. <laughs> no, it's, there's not a right and a wrong way. I'm joking on that. The question comes up, and I get this, who should join in? Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Who shouldn't? Well, let's answer that. Who shouldn't participate first? Those that do not have a saving relationship with Christ Jesus should not partake in the Lord's Supper. This is important, deadly important. Those that do not have a saving relationship with Christ Jesus should not partake in the Lord's Supper. Like if you haven't become a Christian, don't participate. So very important. Because if they do, they commit a significant sin against Christ himself. And we'll cover this next week. A person uh, should be baptized before they begin to take communion. This is very important. The Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. You will be guilty for the death of Christ Jesus. If you're not a believer in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord, this is a huge warning. But it's not just for unbelievers that should not participate. It's also this, Christians that have unforgiveness towards others or have unrepentant sin should not participate in the Lord's Supper. You go, Paul, you just said our sins are forgiven. No, I didn't, didn't challenge that. I said unrepentant sin should not participate or unforgiveness. Do you see this? Christians that have unforgiveness towards others or have unrepentant sin should not participate in the Lord's Supper. So as Christians, what do we do? What do we do then? The Apostle Paul tells us in verse 28 through 30 of our text for today, let a person examine himself. This is very important. Examine himself. Then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Woo! That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Are you kidding me? You know, this is part of this. All right, do you see what I mean as we begin uh, being, as being a warning not to take the Lord's Supper until you have repented or forgiven those that have sinned against you? Is there someone that you need to ask forgiveness of? Like you've sinned against them and you know it? Go to them. Ask for forgiveness. Paul is serious here. Is there someone you need to forgive? We could pause and and teach a whole sermon right here. And baby, I ain't lying. Could it be that your sickness and maybe even death has come from a lax view of communion? Paul says so. You go, no way. You'd be arguing with scripture then, baby. The apostle Paul says that that's the case. And this is scripture. And, and yet, I think most Christians, I've, even, I've been even guilty of this. Most Christians simply play like, well, this warning from Paul doesn't really exist. It's not that serious. He's not being really serious. So, so what do we do with that? Because as believers, we're commanded to participate in the Lord's Supper. But then we have this warning, this deadly warning. The Apostle Paul answers in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. He's talking to believers here. That's the incentive right there, not to lie to ourselves. Like we have to really come clean here. Have we let sin unforgiveness into our life. Do you see how the regular practice of the Lord's Supper is designed to bring us back into right relationship and a right heart with God? Do you see that? It's this beautiful thing to leave the sins that have crept back into our lives. We didn't become unsaved. We have let them creep in, but we need to repent of them. Communion becomes this wonderful time to get right with God. And a warning if you don't get right. And what is the warning? Look at verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, he's talking about Christians here, when we're judged for taking communion improperly, he says we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is good news. He says we're disciplined because we're loved. We are believers. If Christians take communion without Forgiveness without repenting, God is still gracious. Amen? His, his discipline is because he loves us. He disciplines not in retribution, but rather that we might be brought again into right relationship with God. Because we're his children. We read this from the author of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 5 through 8. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. He's talking to Christians. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. 
We don't like that verse, but it's true. We should love it. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the redeemed, when we have been chastised, when we have been disciplined, although it's painful, let's be honest, although we don't like it, it actually means that we're sons and daughters of God. Did you catch that? It actually means we're sons and daughters of God. The third question I get about the Lord's Supper is this. Who can administer the Lord's Supper? Listen to the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and the stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Look at those word, that word stewards there. That can be translated as representatives of the king, an official of the king, and it can be translated overseer, shepherd. I believe this is talking about elders and pastors, those who act as stewards of God's word. So I think this is the answer to the third question right here. Pastors, shepherding elders are the ones who may minister, administer the Lord's Supper. Notice I didn't say can, anybody can, you physically can do it, but we have been permitted. Pastors, pastors, shepherding elders, and the ones who may administer, are the ones who may administer the Lord's Supper. Now you've heard me use the word communion several times today, as well as the Lord's Supper. Why do we call it communion? Two reasons, two reasons. One is that this is something that we do together here. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are those ordinances, those commands that have been given to us by Jesus Christ himself to be done as a family. They are not a suggestion, by the way. They are a command. This bonds us together talking about the local church as the family of God. It brings us together as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. But although we practice the Lord's Supper in the local church family, get this, we are also communing with the invisible church. Those throughout time, those in heaven, those scattered all over the earth. What we call the universal church. We commune with all those saints that have gone on before us in death who are in the, who are in the presence of Jesus right now because of the blood that was shed for their sin as well as ours. And we commune with all those believers in the local churches all over town, all over Colorado, all over the world, churches in South America, Asia, Europe, Africa, even those in Greeley. We're not physically together yet, but spiritually, we are communing, communing with Christ and with each other. We are spiritually united into one church through the body and blood of Jesus. And that is the second reason we call communion communion. 
because in it we are communing with God through the blood of Jesus. You see, the Holy Trinity, talking God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God, one God existing in three persons. We are invited into that relationship of that Trinity with God with what, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that sacrificial death, we're invited in. It is God the Father who has foreordained it. That's the word scripture used. That's not me making that up. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes us alive, calls us to life. Remember John 3. He makes us alive and it is the death of Jesus that pays the price for our freedom. In Christ, we are children of God. So as we get ready to participate in the Lord's Supper, let's take just what we've studied so far and put it into practice. Let's take take time to examine our heart as we enter this time of prayer together and reflect on our life. Is there sin that has come in that you need to repent of? Is there unforgiveness? Is there someone that you need to ask forgiveness of? Don't take it today. Go to them. Take time to go to God right now. Repent of of that sin. Repent of the unforgiveness. Forgive that person. Tell God about it. Repent of the sin in your own life. Name it. Name the sin. What is God pointing out right now through the power of his Holy Spirit? Just enter into a time of prayer as we do this. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.